This is Amy Cohen Epstein, founder and executive director of the 20 plus year old nonprofit organization, the Lynn Cohen Foundation, and the SEAM, the series for education and awareness in medicine. In this podcast, I'll be interviewing female founders, entrepreneurs, scientists, doctors, researchers to talk about women's health, wellness, and preventive care. Take a listen. I am so excited to be able to talk to you today, Dr. Julia Smith. Will you tell me what your title is? Uh, Yeah, I am the Clinical Director of the Cancer Screening and Prevention Program at the NYU Isaac and Laura Perlmutter Cancer Institute. Did you always know that you wanted to be a doctor and go into medicine? And then at what point on that trajectory did you decide to go into oncology? Well. Um, you know, my father was a surgeon, so you, you know, you could say that it was sort of in the family blood, but none of my sisters ended up going into medicine. And I think that it, it just, when I was in college, I liked science a lot, even as a kid and in high school, I did science projects. I enjoyed it. And when I was in college, I actually majored in um, biology, but I majored in, which I loved, but I majored in English as well, and I loved that. I was sort of uh, looking at different things that might be fun to do after, and it's what I thought in the end was that the MD-PhD program, which is what I went into, I was actually the first woman in the NYU MD-PhD program ever, and uh, which dates me, but um, that suited me, because what I like about you know, I love science, uh, but what I really love uh, is taking care of patients. And I love, you know, I love the the connection with patients and the stories. And that made me very happy. So um, I ended up doing uh, the MD-PhD program, which was terrific for me. I got to, you know, really delve into molecular genetics and biology, retroviral genetics and uh then um, I got to do medicine. And when it then came time to choose uh, an internship and residency, uh, what seemed nicest for me would be internal medicine because it it sort of takes care of the whole person. And in internal medicine residency, that's when I was up in Boston, up at uh, the Brigham, the Harvard residency. And when I was up there, um, you know, it's funny, you spend a lot of time in your residency, you know, in medical school and internship, every single thing looks fascinating and great. And then you do your residency where you're just, you're just getting pounded, even though the the material is fascinating. um, You're just sort of getting run ragged, especially in those days, because there were no rules limiting how hard they could work interns and residents. And you, you spend a lot of time thinking, well, I don't think pulmonary, I'm not really interested in sputum. I don't think gastroenterology, I'm not, I don't want to spend my life with feces. I'm not sure I want to do urology because, and renal because, you know. Anyway, oncology was perfect for me because actually the, the, I was being somewhat facetious before, but actually that was the time when 
everything was bursting open on the oncology field. And it was the first place that molecular genetics and molecular biology actually was able to be translated to from the bench and the lab to the patients and the clinical situation. Everything just burst open at that point. So it was ideal for me. So this was the 1980s. And it combined, it combined, you know, all my interest in science and in biology and molecular biology and genetics. And then, of course, what happened in, um, in the early 90s was that Mary Claire King um, cloned the BRCA genes. And when she cloned the BRCA genes, I knew that I wanted to be involved in um, prevention uh, you know, in, in cancer prevention, because once she was able to show that there was in one case, a genetic um, basis for predisposition to cancer, it was clear that the whole field was going to just burst right o- wide open. And that was really the beginning. And then it was you and your family that understood in, you know, really, seriously, this is, you know, this is why I'm always happy to do anything with you and the Lynn Cohen Foundation, because you understood very early on when most people didn't get it. Uh, Even most doctors didn't get it. Many scientists did, but most doctors did not understand how important it was to really pursue the issue of genetics and genomics. Genomics is the genetics of the tumor tissue and genetics usually refers to what's called germline genetics, which is the genes you're born with. And it was that, you know, Lynn Cohen Foundation understood that this was something that really could offer women. At that time, it was really only women. Um, We've subsequently discovered many, many genes that apply uh, to all everyone. But at that time, it was Lynn Cohen understood that it was something where you could use this information and do research and help women prevent cancers, even if they've had a cancer, prevent a second cancer. So that was that was sort of my journey, and I loved it, and I it was it worked out really well for me because, you know, then it, everybody sort of eventually understood. And now, of course, most cancer therapeutics are going to be based on genomics and genetics. Right. You said something really interesting, which was that, no, I I mean, it's fascinating. And I could ask a million other questions on that, but I know you're in between more important things than being on my podcast. So I'm going to ask a few (laughs) other ones, which is, one is, um, you said something really fascinating, which was that doctors didn't understand it at the time, but scientists did. What is the distinction yes. in your specific field between doctors and scientists, and then also when that overlaps? Because I would consider you a doctor and a scientist. So where where well, that's that, right. What is the but I'm a, I difference? am a doctor and a scientist. Yes, see, but I am a doctor and a scientist because my science, right. I have a PhD in molecular biology, but most doctors, you know, they are they 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 understand a lot of science they're exposed to a lot of science but they're not at the laboratory bench looking at on right. the molecular level or the cellular level at the impact of right. different maneuvers so 
And, and of course, doctors, myself included, you know, m- much of the time you're putting out fires and you're just trying to do the very best you can for a patient, especially oncologists who have serious problems. So to integrate a whole new field because genetics was a whole new concept. You know, nobody believed, nobody, not the doctors, not the scientists, not the lay public, nobody believed that cancer had a genetic basis. And they laughed when, when the 60s or 70s when someone would say, or even the 80s, you know, we, there could be a genetic basis. And what are you talking about? Cancer's not a genetic. Well, it was Mary Claire King who cloned those yeah. BRCA genes who just didn't give up. And, sh- and nobody doubts the genetic basis now. But it was a, it's a hard thing for doctors who are incredibly busy, who are incredibly pressured, trying to take care of, you know, all kinds of really difficult problems and be there for their patients. It's not an easy thing to then integrate an entirely new concept and field. And how do you do that, you know, when you're running around like, a, you know, uh, trying to just handle everybody else's problems? So it takes time. And, and some of that is good because you don't want doctors jumping on bandwagons, which has happened occasionally, to the detriment of patients' outcomes. You know, people and Patients do this, or the lay public does this, and they shouldn't do it. They hear something that hasn't been tried and true, that hasn't been proven, and they jump on it, and they can hurt themselves. So doctors as a general group, I think it's good. They're quite conservative medically, and you know they want to wait until there's real proof that they had validated studies before they do anything different to their patients. And that, I think, is actually, in general, a good impulse. Yeah. But I mean, people ask me, you know, when they have a loved one who's been recently diagnosed with ovarian cancer, let's say, you know, where should I go? Who should I see if they know nothing? And my gut always says, you need to be at a research institution seeing a doctor who's a scientist and a researcher because their level of knowledge and is, is significantly different than someone who's not in that kind of setting. And then obviously to be with someone like you, who in addition has this incredible patient care is like, you know, the best of all worlds because you're just an angel sent from heaven, you know, to work with someone. But that is, to me, that's like the most important thing when talking about, I mean, when we're just talking about women right now, but I can't see you as an oncologist when you were said you were making the decision. I can't imagine you working with anyone but women. (laughs) To me, it seems so natural and so obvious. I agree. Yeah. I think so much who you are. Yeah. I really love working with women. And, you know, it's so interesting in the field of ovarian and breast cancer, which is where, you know, we sort of started with genetics. And it's like in that field, it's become, you know, dominated now by female doctors. And, and, you know, that makes sense to me. I mean, if, if you, if you're a woman and in, you know, you think about this in the old days, women were gynecologists they'd go to were all men, but now it's all rare men. that you're going, right. Remember? And yeah. now it's rare that you would be going to a male gynecologist and, you know, that's understandable. And it's the same with ovarian cancer and breast cancer. You know, it's just, uh, it's just sort of, um, much more 
sort of natural to be with a woman and and someone who can relate in a truly empathic way to what you're going through, you know. Absolutely. It is. It's, it's amazing. And I'm, it's such a, you know, a, a lot of people, you know, talk about how women don't go into these careers, but if you are able, if you're in it, like you are, and you see it and you actually say, no, there are a great deal of amount of women, you know, oncologists in this field and women gynecologists, it's phenomenal. And it's true. I grew up seeing a guy, gyne- a male gynecologist. And then as an adult, I said, why am I seeing a male gynecologist? You know, I don't understand. You know, I, I actually feel more comfortable with a female and, um, and there's so many wonderful female, wonderful and smart and fantastic female gynecologists and um, OBGYNs that I, I'd rather see. And now I do, and I'm much happier. Um, right. I have one other right. thing I'd really like to get into with you, which we've talked so much about, which is, and it's so relevant to right now, which is, you know, this idea, and my mom talked about this so much, and, you know, she passed away over 20 years ago, but it was relevant then, and it's certainly relevant now, but people are really talking about it now, which is, you know, cancer knows no boundaries. Um, and for specifically talking about women's cancers, we should, but cancer knows, you know, it doesn't care what, how much money you have. It doesn't care the color of your skin. It doesn't care your background. It doesn't care if you have insurance. It's, just one of those things that happens to anybody and it's completely non-discriminatory and I remember you know my my dad who came from nothing and worked his whole life to be able to give his family everything that he didn't have it was the hardest thing for him to have my mom get cancer and then pass away because it didn't matter how successful he was financially there was nothing he could do um and it, it really changed him for the rest of his life but I I think about that so much and which is why it was always so important for us with the foundation to try and and treat and be able to offer our preventive care services to women you know of all to all women and you've been so involved in that and I just would like to hear more about you know how we can do that better and how we can do that more and how we can really in New York especially really serve the the um the underserved the uninsured and the minority population of women who really need these preventive services but you know how we make how we get into that even more than we already have yeah yeah and you know of course now you bring this up at a time you know first of all today is you know Juneteenth yeah and secondly it's right and secondly it's yeah you know in the midst of a, a true what I hope will be a true sea change in in the you know the way our society operates and you know mm-hmm. and the with the you know uh, hopefully it will go in the right direction but you know yeah this is this it's so important and there's been a great deal of um you know in this last i'd say this i'd say maybe the last 10 15 years there's there has been more and more after Lynn Cohen there's been more and more emphasis mm-hmm. though from the government even the NIH on trying to understand why minority women which you know they they may not be minority anymore but but non-white women have different biology it's just like women have different biology than men. You can't look at heart disease in men as they always did and try to treat women that way. You can't treat right. every group the same. 
and you know this is a sort of a critical time for really drilling down now on how to sort of understand the you know the specific individual's biology whoever that woman is and how it's yeah. going to be best to treat her you know and it's not going to be the yeah. same for everyone yeah no I and i guess it's also figuring out which you know which communities or which ethnicities which backgrounds are at higher risk for different types of diseases like we know that our, women of ashkenazi jewish descent are at greater risk for being positive for BRCA1 or BRCA2 um right. and that's something you know a lot of women don't know and they're you know that puts them into our preventive care clinic because they're like wait what i'm you know, I, I'm an Ashkenazi Jew, so I'm at greater risk for breast or ovarian cancer. I didn't know that, right. you know, right. Um, right. And, and another thing to think about. Um, but I think that right. that was given, that was, that was found out. And my hope is, is that when we focus on other, you know, other ethnicities, other communities, that maybe there are other things that come out. And it's interesting, like you said, for so long, we studied men and we assumed that that right. worked for women autoimmune right. disease, different types of cancers where really, you you know, you can't fit women into the male mold. Um, it just right. doesn't work. <laughs> I know. But, you know, it's interesting that you bring this up, Amy, because I was thinking as you were talking at NYU, when I think about, like, I think every, every week we have a, what's called a multidisciplinary conference. And that is where mm -hmm. the, you know, challenging or even non-challenging, just questionable, you know, decision-making cases get presented, and everybody's there who could be involved in the case. So, you know, the medical oncologists are there, the surgeons, the breast surgeons are there, you know, the gynecologic surgeons are there, the um, radio radiologists, the radiation therapists, the, the, you know, radiation oncologists, the pathologists are there. Everyone who could have a role in this woman's care shows up and the practitioners okay there's you know the vast 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 majority of doctors at this conference to discuss and decide about the appropriate treatment for each case are women so i don't know if this is yeah. true actually at every institution but it's definitely true you're right you know and it's definitely true at nyu the um the Amazing. vast majority of, yeah of the the core group treating uh, GYN cancers and breast cancers are women now. That's amazing. My last question will be for you because I would I see almost I see you this way, although I don't get to see you or talk to you as much as I would love. Um, are you a mentor to other young um, people that you were, other young women that you work with? Do you, are you do you fill that role yes. for for women? Yes. Yes. They're um, so lucky. And, and that I think. Yeah, and that I think is one thing that's really has always appealed to me about being at an academic and you know you brought this up earlier but being at an academic institution where there is you know research and uh sort of everyone's trying to be at the cutting edge of what's going on clinically and scientifically is that you have the opportunity to teach and to mentor and that's wonderful because you know you get to sort of see the next generation coming along and how much more this can seamlessly be, you know, rolled into their way of thinking and practicing. And that's really yeah. a very gratifying thing to see. And the very last question I'm going to ask you, Julie, and then I will let you get back to work. 
Um, are you hopeful for the future of preventive care uh, with ovarian cancer? Yes, I really am. I think that we're finally, for a long time, after we under, had a, a genetic understanding of the basis of much of the cancer, we didn't really understand the genomics, the genetics of the tumor. And now that is completely busting open. And I think what we're going to see for all cancers is that once you can understand genetically what's going on in the tumor and in the patient, you'll have a target, which we are developing. You know, you hear a lot about in immunotherapy checkpoint inhibitors, this CAR mm -hmm. T cells. That's what this is. You find you don't have to worry about did the cancer start in the lung, in the ovary, in the breast, in the pancreas. All you what you need to do is find out in that case, in that cancer, what went wrong that in the cells that allowed them to divide and proliferate and then target that defect and you know get rid of it. And that I think is you, you, we are we are changing rapidly. And I think that that is, you know, the really a big hope for this next, uh, you know, this next decade is going to change the way cancer is treated. And I think I have a lot of hope for the way ovarian cancer is, you know, it's already in many cases, ovarian cancer, which was, oh, it's still very rough, but it was a complete death sentence for all those years. And now yeah. in many cases, we have converted it into a chronic disease. So now what we have to do is get rid of it entirely. Yeah, and find it early. I think I have a lot of hope for that. That's amazing. Well, if you have, if you're, if you're in the positive mode and you have hope, then I do too.